Good morning. There are some things in life that are universal. By that I mean, regardless of what country you're in or where you are in the world, if you were driving a car or a vehicle and you saw an eight-sided red sign, what would you do? Yeah. Even if it said alto or pare or some other word that you didn't understand, you would know that that means stop. It's because there's a sign, a symbol that transcends language and culture. It's a universally accepted symbol. God oftentimes speaks in his word through symbols or signs, things that anyone can understand. And the reason for that is because the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors in three different languages on three separate continents. And still today, you can read God's Word and understand it. The book of Revelation has many signs and symbols. We've talked about all of them as we've gone through this study. And today we find ourselves in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 9. And in chapter 21, verse 9, we're given a very graphic description of the city of New Jerusalem, which we talked about last week, and we'll get into now in detail. But all of the descriptions of this city are signs. They're symbols. They represent things that anyone can understand. There may be some literal interpretation to what's being presented to us, But a lot of it is designed to help you to understand things that are of a deeper nature, deeper meaning. I recently, Michelle and I recently had an opportunity uh, in our neighborhood. There was a uh, a fair, a feast that they were holding at an Orthodox church. And we attended with some friends. And and the thing that we found is they had a little tour of their sanctuary. And Eastern Orthodoxy is very rich in symbolism, iconography, and different things that have much deeper meanings than just what you see on the surface. And it was very enjoyable to take the tour and to see the sanctuary and to look at all of these images and the stained glass and works of art and have the priest explain to us the deeper meanings of their liturgy and the different things that they use in their sanctuary. Now, we are not a liturgical church, obviously. We, we, don't, we don't embrace all of that liturgy, but I grew up in a church that does, and I also know that there's a degree of symbolism in everything we do as Christians. Well, this morning's study is, is, an, is a great example of the symbolism in the Bible that all of us can embrace and understand, and I believe that for our study today, will be richer for taking the time to look at it. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the many facets of your word. There are scriptures that simply teach us. There are scriptures that rebuke us and correct us. There are scriptures that educate us on the history and your plan for mankind. And then there are scriptures that present to us things that we couldn't possibly understand if they were presented to us literally. But symbolically, you give us an understanding through your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we ask for ears to hear, minds to understand and perceive the truths, the deeper truths of your word, that we might grow ever closer to you with expectation for your coming glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by just looking at verse 9 in chapter 21. Verse 9 says this, One of the seven angels, John writes, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now we've talked so much about this, even just recently in our studies. John is called by one of these seven angels. We've been introduced to these seven angels before, but one of them that had the seven bowls says, Come and see the bride, the wife of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we know through our studies that that means us. We're the bride of Christ. John had seen the holy city, in verse 2 of this chapter, coming down out of heaven from God into a new heaven, a new earth that God will create in the last days, or after the millennium, actually. This city was the place 
prepared by God in heaven for us on the new earth. And Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't have said it. This is the place. This is what it looks like, or at least the symbolism of of what it is that we might understand more of what God has in store for us in the future. The city was prepared as a bride, we're told, beautifully dressed for her husband. And of course, the bride, the wife of the lamb, is all of God's people who will dwell in this holy city in eternity. So this is what we might actually describe as our heavenly home. And I know you're thinking, well, it's not in heaven, it's on a new earth. Yeah, there's a new earth and a new heavens that we talked about last week. But that's actually the heaven that we talk about, the eternity that we talk about. Because there is a heaven, it's the dwelling place of God. And we think of that as the place where we'll ultimately end up. Now, the truth is, we'll have access to the throne room of God. But here's what's going to change, and we'll see this in our study today. God will dwell with men. And they will dwell with him. We will dwell with him. So things are going to be different in eternity. A new heaven, a new earth, new in in quality, better, different. The The old heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never pass away. And the truth is, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at a very symbolic description of our heavenly home. That's the point I want us to make right up front. And we're there. And we're told that John was carried away. Look at, look at verse 10. And I want to read right through to verse 14. We're told here, and this, this angel, he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So notice it comes out of the heavens. And it's shown with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal, or a diamond. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, do I believe that literally this is what the city looks like? Yes and no. There's a description here that is true, but it's so much deeper than just what's being described. Because as we talked about last week, we can't possibly understand heaven and our heavenly home in terms that we embrace today. We try to describe things that are outside of our creation today with words that only can describe things within our creation, and we fall short. Imagine if you had to explain to someone in the first century the Internet. You'd probably ruin them. But imagine trying to explain something as simple that kids understand today. Or, or, a, or a computer, or a tablet, or a cell phone, God forbid. So imagine trying to explain something like that to someone even a hundred years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. You wouldn't have the language. Uh, you wouldn't, the person wouldn't have an understanding. There would be no way, really, to communicate to them unless you broke it down in terms that everyone can understand. And if you ever want an exercise in symbolism, imagine the words you would use and how you would explain something as simple as a television or a cell phone or a tablet or a computer to someone even a hundred years ago. And you'll find out you have to use language that everyone can understand. So that's where we're at, and that's the language we see here employed for us to understand, though we are called to understand. It's just you have to accept the fact that a lot of this is beyond our understanding. So with that... As we've looked at this next section here, John is carried away in the spirit to a mountain. Now, the mountain is on the new earth, but he's seeing the city coming down out of the heavens. And here's what he sees. He sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which we've talked about already. But notice he says he's once again in the spirit. The spirit took me away, carried me away. He's carried away to a mountain great and high. Now, John had been carried away in the spirit on several occasions already as he's received this revelation. Back in chapter 1, verse 10. In chapter 4, verse 2. In chapter 17, verse 3. The Spirit sort of carries him away to another place where he sees what's going to happen. Now, whether or not 
John was actually transported through time to see the future or whether he was just given a vision of the future, I don't know. But remember, with God, all things are possible. What he's seeing is something that will happen, but he sees it as if it's happening, which is pretty neat. So this revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not of things to come. But he sees a city, the city which shone with the glory of God like a brilliant diamond. And we're told the city had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 foundations. Now, the great wall, why a wall? Do you even need a wall in this new heaven and new earth? No. But the wall speaks of separation. And there is separation between us and wickedness and sin and hell. There is separation. Separation is a good thing. Would you agree? What if you didn't have doors on your home? When I was a kid, we used to go camping. I was a Boy Scout. And we'd go camping. We stayed in these things called lean-tos. Anyone know what a lean-to is? Okay. It's basically an open pavilion or open platform with two walls, two or three walls, and a roof. But it had a big open wall. There's no security. There's no separation. Which means the bugs and wildlife can make their way in, which is why you're very careful about leaving a granola bar out next to your bed because then you'll wake up with a bear. No separation. And there's a lot of Christians living today in this way. There's no separation between them and the world. There's nothing to divide them from the worldly system because they've opened up their doors of their life and they're living in a lean-to. No, we are called to have doors that we can lock in our homes, in our cars, but we are called to have a separation. The Bible says, come out from among them and be you separate. Be separate. There is nothing wrong with a separation between us and the world. Now, that doesn't mean we're not in the world. It just means we're not allowing the world to be in us to the greatest degree we can. So think about a wall in that way, a separation, but also security, protection. Walls, (laughs) walls work. So having said it that way, they do separate us from the rest of the world. And that great high wall provided this separation and security for the holy city. Now remember that God the Father is holy. And we see this played out throughout Scripture. There, there's a wall of separation, a curtain in the tabernacle and in the temple, which is rent in two from top to bottom when Christ dies on the cross. But that wall of separation between us and God has been removed. He's broken down every wall. He is our peace. But that wall of separation still exists between us and everything else. The wickedness in the world, the sinners, all that wickedness we're separated from, or at least we should be. But there was a wall of security in this city because we're safe and secure in God the Son. So these are symbols of the security and the safety and the separation that we'll experience for all eternity. Can you imagine? No CNN. No Fox News. Let's be fair. You know, I mean, none of that stuff being piped into our eternal home. None of it. Separation from all the ugliness and sinfulness of the world, that in and of itself sounds like a pretty good eternal home. Amen? But what about you? What's your home on earth like right now? Oh, I hope you have walls and security. You probably need to in today's world. But how much stuff are we allowing in? It's a challenge to us today to remember that, for now, we're responsible to maintain separation and security in Christ in our lives as best we can by the power of the Spirit. But one day, God will do that for us, and it will truly be a paradise. There are 12 gates, and they provide access to the holy city. And you need gates. Imagine if your home didn't have a door. If you were on the inside when they built it, you'd never get out. And if you're on the outside, you'd never get in. You have a door because a door is necessary to come in and out. And there are gates. And that represents access to God the Father. And we know that access to God the Father is only through whom? God the Son, Jesus, who said of himself, I am the gate, or I am the door. And so the gates point to Jesus. The wall points to Jesus. 
All of it points to Jesus. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you'll find Jesus at the center of every single symbol in some way, shape, or form in this book. Now, city gates were places of judgment in the ancient world. Anyone in the ancient world would understand that. It was like your courthouse. The city gate is where all the city um, court cases and business was handled there at that gate. And when you think about it, God the Son was judged that we might enter the presence of God. So entering a gate speaks of judgment. And because our sins have been judged in Christ, who is the door, the gate, I am the gate, I am the door, no one comes to the Father but by him. Walking through the gate, walking through that door is a symbol of being in Christ and having access to God's presence. So again, pointing to Jesus. These are, these are pretty deep things, things to meditate on. Also, there are 12 angels guarding the 12 gates. Now, the word angel means messenger. They could be angelic beings. They may not be, but they're messengers. And they're named, each gate is named for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. By the way, there were three gates on each side of the four sides of the city. And by the way, the 12 tribes of Israel in the book of Numbers in chapter 2 used to encamp around the tabernacle in exactly the same way, with three on each side. And so that symbol is of Israel. But of course, we're the Israel of God, but Israel is still the Israel of God as well. God has a plan for Israel that is separate and distinct from the church, but we're all God's people. And so there's a reference there to God's people, Israel. But there are references to God's people, the church as well. The 12 foundations were named for the 12 apostles of Jesus, the Lamb of God, by the way, some people have said, well, what about Judas? Well, obviously his name's not there. <laughs> Maybe it was replaced by Paul. I don't know, but I know this, that that represents the church. So what are these symbols telling us? Well, the people of God, Israel, the people of God, the church, who love God, these are those that are the bride of Christ, living for eternity in the presence of God. And by the way, the number 12 has a symbolic meaning. It represents government or administration. It's used in the scripture to represent government or administration. So the city is governed, yes, by God, but we see the way it's set up. It refers to the people that will live there in these ways. The 12 foundations, named for 12 apostles, and the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 gates. Now the city, as I've said already, is the hope that we will someday inherit as God's people. It is our heavenly home. It is exactly that. As I've said, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints. And by the way, if you'll remember with me, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, verse 4, and throughout the book, we were introduced to 24 elders. I'm sure it wasn't lost on you that 12 times 2 is 24. Why is that? Well, that's a symbol. Remember that symbol, that sign I referred to as we opened our study? In the Old Testament, Israel was represented by 12 patriarchs. In the New Testament, the church was represented by 12 apostles. When you take the Old and New Testaments, of which there are two testaments, and you put them together, you get the number 24, speaking of all God's people throughout the ages. So all of that symbolism tells us something about who the bride is. Some believe that the bride is only the church. I don't believe that because of this description. The bride, as described here, the bride of Christ, include all the righteous in Christ. And that includes those Old Testament saints. Okay, so now we know who lives there, who dwells there. The city, the description of the city tells us that. But then we read something in verse 15. And I'm actually going to read from 15 all the way through the end of this chapter. There's a lot here, so listen carefully. We read there, John writes, The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by a man's measurement, which, is, or which uh, the angel was using. A cubit, by the way, was the distance from the tip of your finger to your elbow. And by the way, that's different for everybody by a little bit, you know, depending on 
how big you are, how tall you are, how long your arm is. Uh, but if you were working on a project and you were a mason or you were a carpenter, uh, you always had your measuring tape with you because it was right here. And so they would measure things that way, and that would be a cubit, which is roughly a foot and a half, roughly 18 inches. Um, but you know, it depends on who you are. But that's, in a sense, the measurement. And, it, and he's telling us, well, the angel was measuring in cubits according to a man's measurement. So that means that when the angel was me- measuring, this was his measuring tape. That's all that's telling us, and we'll, we'll continue. And by the way, we're told the wall was made of jasper in the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. Uh, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. So the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Now you may be familiar with some of those, others you may not be. But the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, uh, like transparent glass. Let's just stop there for a minute, actually. That's a lot. Right through to verse 21. This angel comes out with a rod to measure the city. Now, when you measure something, it implies you own it. In fact, one of the very first things you have to do to purchase a home is have a survey. It implies that you own the home, or at least that you're purchasing the home, because they do a survey and they typically measure your property line and your home and your square footage, and then the tax people come and then they they hit you with a bill. I love that when they send somebody over, they send me some young kid, you know, he comes in the house, he looks around, I'm like, yeah, here we go. And my taxes go up 1800. That's just the state of New Jersey. But measuring something implies ownership. God does this throughout the scriptures. He'll have individuals measure temples and measure, usually it's a temple, but to measure something is to imply God's ownership over it. But the city is described as being laid out like a square. And notice 12,000 stadia. By the way, a stadia is 1,400 miles in length. 1,400 miles in length, width, and height. 12,000 stadia. The measurement of stadia is important even though we don't know what that is because of the number 12. 12 times 1,000. We're back to that number 12. What is that telling us? God's government, God's administration. It's telling us God is in control. And it may be a cube. It may be a perfect cube like the Holy of Holies. Remember the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a cube and so was the Holy of Holies in the temple. So I suspect that's probably the case. But remember, we're talking about things that are so beyond our understanding that to try to describe it in terms like a cube is like limiting what it actually is. But so that we can understand, I suspect it may be something cube-like. It could even be, by this description, a pyramid, which is at least interesting because you know, a cube fits a description, but a pyramid does as well because it's got the four sides and width, height, and it can all still be the same measurements. It doesn't have to be a cube. could be a pyramid. Why do I say that? Because mankind is obsessed with that shape, interestingly enough. Throughout ancient civilizations, you see it on every continent. You see it throughout history. So that's the case that can be made that our heavenly home will be a pyramid. I don't know. I don't care. Long as I'm there. Long as I'm there, I'm good. But the point is, these are just interesting things to contemplate. By the way, 1,400 miles. Let me give you some reference. It's the distance from here to Colorado. So if you've ever driven across the country, or maybe most of the way, it's 1,400 miles. It's two-thirds the size of Australia. So if you're familiar with the continent and country of Australia. It has an area of 1.96 million square miles at the base, just at the base, which is roughly 1% of the Earth's surface, which is a lot. And... If it is a cube of sorts, it has as much as 2.744 billion cubic miles of space, which is roughly 1% of the Earth's space, cubic footage. So to give you a a, sort of a percentage, about 1%, about an Earth, about 1% of the size. So the new heaven and the new Earth exist, and then there's this, this thing that some have described as almost the size of the moon. That's a city. 
sounds better and better the more I describe it or the more it's described for me. The city wall was 144 cubits in thickness. Now, I'm sure that's not lost on you that 12 times 12 is 144. You know how I know that? We called it a gross. And when I was a kid, we used to buy fireworks by the gross. That's how I learned what a gross was. Isn't that something? By buying fireworks. But now you won't forget it either. 144 cubits, 12 times 12, uh, which is roughly 200 feet in thickness. Now, that could also be translated height. So we're not sure if the wall was 200 high or 200 thick, or maybe it's both. But it's made of diamond. Is God poor? (laughs) I love when pastors get up and they describe God as being poor, and you have to continue to give in order to help poor God out. You know, we're taking up an offering. We have a GoFund account for God because... He just doesn't have the resources. You know, it's one of the things that, I'm going to be a little rough here, disgusts me about the modern church. You've probably noticed, if you've come here more than one or two weeks, that we don't receive an offering. Uh, We have a box in the back for those that want to worship the Lord through giving. But I'm big on that. I'm big on the idea that what people should see when they come into the house of God is a group of people who love them and want to give to them, not take from them. And that concept of tithing and offering, I think, has just become a real turnoff for many people who come to church. Now, maybe there was a time where it wasn't, but I can tell you what I feel like when they pass that plate in front of me. I feel like it's a shakedown, to be honest. And the worst part of it is that God is not poor. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. Does he need my 20 bucks? Or my spare change? Absolutely not. If he can make a wall like this out of diamond, I think he's doing okay. I don't think inflation has hit him very hard. I'll leave that alone now. But the city was made of what John describes as pure translucent gold, pure as glass. Gold was the purest metal that they were familiar with at that time. So when he calls it gold, what he's trying to say is it was so pure, it was see-through, it was transparent. It was like glass. That's how pure the city was. And the foundations of the city walls are decorated with every kind of precious stone. I, I, I actually enjoy seeing a jewelry that's made uh, like, a, like as art. And when you see jewelry and they use all the different color stones, amethysts, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, it's beautiful. I mean, we recently had uh, that coronation, right, in, in, in the UK. And So many people were looking at the crown jewels and the different gems that were used in the crowns and the scepter and the the different elements of that coronation. They're beautiful. I kind of think that money should be used for better purposes, but that's just me. There will come a day, though, that when God takes all the beauty of his creation and instills it in this city, so the beauty of jewelry or gems is not a bad thing necessarily, But we have to be careful to put God first, people, before wealth and opulent displays of art. Having said that, though, this is going to be an absolutely beautiful city. That much we know. But I want to point this out that in Exodus 28, we learn that these are the very same 12 stones that are mounted in the high priest's breastplate, representing God before God's people and representing the people before God. The high priest would wear a breastplate over the ephod at pockets, and, and on that he had the rows of the gems, each one with the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So these gems actually are associated with each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So again, that symbol of 12, but also pointing to the people of God, Israel. There's also 12 gates, that number 12 over and over again here. The gates of the city were 12 pearls, each made of a single pearl. Now, what does that mean? Is it, is it just the light, or is it an actual pearl? I don't know. What is John trying to do? He's trying to describe to us in terms we can understand, and all of us can understand, things that no one can understand, really. So I'll take it at face value, but it still sounds pretty good. And this is where we get the term, the pearly gates. 
Okay. When I first heard that term, I imagined like gates, like the gates that you might have on a, a house at the driveway covered in pearls, but it's actually a single pearl at each gate. If you can imagine such a thing, it's quite interesting. The great street of the city was made of pure translucent gold, that is, it's pure, pure as glass. There is no temple in the city, and this is what we get to in verse 22. I believe that's where we left off. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. They used to shut the gates of the ancient cities at night for obvious reasons. But since there's no night, no need to shut the gates. Now the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So we're told a lot here in terms that we can understand about our heavenly home. Back to where we left off in verse 22. There is no temple. Now, all the Jews had ever known is a temple, a place to meet with God. But since the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are there, why would you have a temple if you're in the presence of God? You don't need a sun or moon because the light of God is all you need. The glory of God gives its light. And notice, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is called its lamp. Now, that's an interesting concept because this tells us everything we need to know about the Trinity. And by the way, that's a very difficult concept to explain and understand. But if you've ever tried to understand in your mind how Jesus Christ can be both God and man, think about it in these very simple terms. That is a lamp. These lights here, are, are they're lamps. They bring light, but the light isn't in the lamp as much as it comes through the lamp. That, in a way, describes Jesus Christ, who is God, who is the light. He's the light of the world. But his human form, that is, his body, is the lamp because it contains the light. So he has this nature as God, which is light. God is light. But he's also a man, so he's the lamp. We can understand. Now, their lamps were different. They had oil lamps, right? So they they had this little lamp that had oil in it, and they would light it, and there'd be a flame, but there'd also be the lamp. So thinking about it that way, if you were to look at an ancient lamp, an oil lamp, you'd look at the flame, and you'd look at the lamp. They're one, right? they're, They're one, but they're different. And so as you look at a lamp, an ancient lamp, or even a light bulb, you can come to the conclusion, there's something about that that helps me to understand the nature of Jesus Christ, who is the lamp shining the light of God. He's both. He's both. A lamp and a light. And what do we learn about the word? It's a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. Who is the word of God? The word was... God and is God. He became flesh and made his dwelling with us. Oh, I could go on all day. It's all about Jesus. That's the point. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is light and Jesus is the lamp that reveals the light. Jesus is one with the Father. He has revealed the glorious light of God to mankind. We need not be in the dark anymore. By the way, we're told the nations, and this is where it gets a little strange because nations, nations Why would there be nations if there's this city? Well, there are. The nations will walk by the light of the city. These nations are all the redeemed of God living on the new earth. So there's gates, so people can go to and fro from the city to the new earth. We don't really know much more than that. They could be dimensional. I have no idea, but it's it's, it's fascinating. The kings of the earth, there will be kings of the earth. But we're a kingdom of priests before our God, so... I suspect some of us are those kings and queens, right? Kings of the earth, they're going to lead these nations and they're going to bring their splendor into the city. That is, they'll glorify God. The gates of the city will never shut. There'll be no night. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the city to honor God. And by the way, nothing impure will ever enter the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful. Now, why would you even mention that? In the new heaven and the new earth, there's no sin So what are we talking about? What is this 
shameful or deceitful description. Well, I want to remind you of the lake of fire, which will exist for all eternity, which will hold and contain and torture those for all eternity who reject Jesus Christ. So those who are in the lake of fire can never enter God's eternity. This is the great separation between those that reject Christ and those that receive Christ. So there's, there's no hope for those who reject Jesus Christ. That's a very serious truth, and it comes out here in the description, because only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life have a place in the city or even in this new creation. The book of life, we've talked about before, contains the names of those who will receive eternal life. How do you get your name in the book? Well, here's the truth. Your name is already in the book if you belong to Jesus Christ. How did God know to put my name in his book of life? Oh, last time I checked, he knows all things. I've said it before. He might have a pencil, but he doesn't have an eraser. He doesn't make mistakes. He knows in advance that you are going to respond before you're born from the foundation of the earth. There was a list. There was a name. There was a printout, and you're on it. Oh, that means God makes the decision for me. No. Decide this day whom you will serve. Choose this day. To as many as received them, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. He gives the right to those that choose. So can those two things be true? Can we make a choice, but God know the choice before we make it? My brain just exploded. Yours? And the problem comes in when we try to figure that out. I trust that God knows what he's doing. And I know I've given my life to him. Therefore, my name is in this book. Oh, how bold of you to say, Pastor Tim. You're not that good. No, I I stink, actually. But the truth is, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the judgment that Jesus Christ took upon himself on the cross. And in doing so, my name is justified to be in that book. And so is yours if you belong to him. Amen? That's a truth we can get excited about. Daniel told us all those that belong to Jesus and belong to God have their names written in this book. God knew, again, before the creation of the world, whose names to write in this book. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 told us that. The book and those written in it belong to him. And as a Christian, your name can never, I want you to hear this, never, I want you to hear this, never be blotted out or erased from this book. We learn that in chapter 3, verse 5 of this book. Now we can rejoice for eternity, as Jesus told us to. Why? Not because of all the miracles that may happen in our life, but because our names are written in this book. This is why we rejoice. We rejoice because we're saved. Amen? So, if you go back over the description of the city and you start to break it down, wait, wait, let me get this right. Like, so the amethyst is the 12th foundation and the, and the gate is a pearl. You missed the point. Get excited about the fact that you're going to be there. Not about what it looks like. Because I guarantee that if I spent 12 studies trying to explain what the city looked like, when you get to heaven and you look around in your heavenly home, you're going to say, this is nothing like Tim explained it. This is nothing what I expected. Way better than he said it was going to be. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. Well, then we get to chapter 22. We're just going to look at the first six verses, and then we'll finish things out in our next study in Revelation. We then read that then the angel, right, John writes, showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and then of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the city stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Ooh, can I hear an amen? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the angel said to me, John writes, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel or his messenger to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, why do I like that word soon? Because that was written about 1,900 years ago or so. And you know what's cool? It's going to happen soon. How much sooner? Sooner than 1,900 years ago, right? So, the angel shows John the river of the water of life. And and you should know by now that these symbols point to Jesus, right? The water of life. 
the throne of God. This all speaks of him. The river was as clear as crystal. It flowed from the throne of God and the throne of Jesus, the Lamb of God. But here's what's interesting. Used to sing, we used to sing a song, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison's doors, sets the captives free. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well within my soul. Spring up a well and make me whole. That's the words of a hymn, a song that we sing. But even that kind of reveals to us something about the symbolism of the river of the water of life. Because the river of the water of life represents the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, in the city. God is light, Jesus is the lamp, and the river represents the Holy Spirit, who is one with God the Father and God the Son. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ because he's one with the Spirit and the Father. So naturally, we're going to see something that represents the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, where do I come up with this? Well... Was it not Jesus who stood up on the last great day of the feast in John's Gospel in chapter 7? Let's take a look at it, actually. I'm not going to butcher it. I'm just going to read it. It's uh, John chapter 7, and I'm just going to turn there and read it for you. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. There was something very interesting that Jesus said, and it kind of makes a point and helps us to understand this. Because he says there, on the last and the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, are you thirsty? Say amen. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. But then verse 39 tells us this, by this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So I didn't make that up. Jesus tells us that symbol speaks of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described in this way as streams of living water. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is the pure divine person sent from God the Father and God the Son. So does it make sense that the river of the water of life comes from the throne of God the Father and God the Son? Of course it does. What are we talking about? Are we actually talking about water? Probably not. It's probably something so beyond our finite minds. But it tells us that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not only one, but we're going to spend eternity with him. Now, there's a tree, and we're familiar with this, because the river flowed down the middle of the great street, and the tree of life stood on each side of the river. This must be a very interesting tree, the way it's growing here, at least described in the vision. The tree of life, of course, represents God's provision of eternal life through Jesus Christ, who hung on the tree. Here's the thing. The cross is really the tree of life to us, but in the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life. And as long as they did not eat from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, as long as they didn't eat that and they just ate from the tree of life, they would live innocent forever. So the tree of life is a symbol of salvation, but it's a symbol of immortality. It's all that we really truly need. And it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Eternal life. The tree and the river are one, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. Together they bring eternal blessing. The tree bears 12 crops of fruit. Again, we have that number 12, yielding its fruit in every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but any hurt, any trauma, anything that you have gone through in this life will be healed and you will be made whole. We know that. We learned last week he's going to wipe every tear, take away pain. The number 12, again, government, administration, all of this shows us that God is in control. No longer any curse in the city because the Garden of Eden will finally be restored. That's the point. All of creation started in a garden. Mankind's creation in a garden. It ends in a garden for all eternity. So if you like gardens, you're going to be okay. By the way, I laugh when people show these pictures of heaven and it's people like playing harps on a cloud. If anything, it should be us hanging out in a garden. The sin of Adam and its terrible curse of death will be permanently removed. No more death. We were told that in the earlier part of this chapter as well. 
And the throne of God and of Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be in the city. That is, right now, we have the heavens and the earth, creation, the universe. As a plane of existence, there are others we've talked about. We also have heaven, the throne room of God, where the angelic beings are. From what I see here, not only will there be a new universe, the throne room of God is actually going to be in this creation. There'll be no separation between us and God. And that's pretty awesome. All of God's servants will serve him face to face. And it says with his name on their foreheads, that implies ownership as well. That's what that means. And there will be no more night. There will be no need for light or lamp, as we've seen, or the light of the sun. And the Lord will give the light, and his servants will reign with him for all eternity. Now, one thing I want to leave you with, and this has to do with light itself. We're going to get into this in a couple weeks when we start our series of studies in the book of Genesis. And the Lord God said, let there be light. Did God create light? Yes. But the scripture says, God is light. What is light? I'm not talking about a lamp. What is light? I'm not even talking about the sun. Because the sun, we know what the sun is. It's a star. It emits light. But what is light? God is light. Who is God? Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Over and over again in the scriptures, it hints, if not flatly states, that God is light. So wait a minute. We really don't know a lot about our universe. But it all started when God said, let there be light. Today, we still really don't understand what light is. We measure everything in our creation by the speed of light, the theories of relativity, everything, you know, has to do with light and, and the speed at which it travels. It's at the center of all creation. E equals mc squared. C is the speed of light. Wait a minute. There's a lot about light we don't understand. Or do we? God is light. You see, he's at the very center of physics. I know this is heavy stuff. And I don't barely understand any of it. But I can tell you this. I know this. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Just as a little fun, the next time you read, let's say, John's Gospel, chapter 1, just make note, or 1 John, make note of how many times the word light is used. And you'll be amazed. There's something about light in our universe that is so much more than what we might think it is. I'll leave you with that. It's a lot to think about. But then as the angel closes this section, he assures John that he could trust that these words are true, and you can trust that they're true. The same Lord God who inspired the prophets, we're told, has communicated these things to his servants. So what you see in the book of Revelation is inspired by the same Holy Spirit who gave us all other 65 books, Old and New Testament. The Lord God sent his angel, his messenger, to show his servants, that's us, the things that will soon take place. And God gave this revelation to Jesus to show his servants what must soon take place. We were told that in the very first verse. Part, the very first part of the first verse of this book in chapter 1, verse 1. And we were also told in the second part of that verse that Jesus made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So in a sense, the vision begins and ends in the same way. Now, we're not done with the book of Revelation, but we're done with the revelation as the vision. So the rest of this chapter to the end of the book is really the epilogue. It sort of closes things out and encourages us how to live as a result of this truth. But we're, we're done studying the actual revelation of Jesus Christ. What comes next is the closing words that John shares with us after having received that revelation. But we'll get to that in due time. In the meantime... Think about the fact that you can't even possibly begin to imagine what God has in store for you. Eye has not seen, ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love him. You know, I don't know about you, but it's always exciting as a child to know that Christmas is coming or that next week is your birthday and there may be a surprise. And a lot of kids like surprises, but what's the first thing? Is, well, there's a surprise. What is the first thing they ask you? What is it? 
It's natural. Heaven is a surprise in a sense that we really can't even begin to understand it. But like that stop sign, these symbols help us to know a little bit about it. It's like they're hints, they're descriptions. But if you approach the book of Revelation, or any scripture for that matter that's symbolic in this way, and you say, what is it? You're probably going to hear what parents say to their children when they ask that question. You'll find out. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this precious portion of scripture and the description that encourages us to know that we will find out In due time, we will find out all the things that you have prepared for us in eternity. We're so grateful that you have a plan that includes saving us by dying on the cross, being raised from the dead that you might give us eternal life, entering heaven to intercede on our behalf, and coming again to judge the living and the dead that we might be judged righteous in Jesus Christ. O Lord, Heavenly Father, help us this week as our world is going crazy, to remember that none of this really matters. That in the end, we will spend an eternity with you. Oh Lord, that should put our hearts at rest. That should bring us a peace that passes all understanding and a joy unspeakable. To know that you're working on our behalf and we can rejoice as you told your apostles that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But there may be those here today who haven't made that decision. And as a consequence of, having, consequence of not having made that decision or having made a decision to reject you, will have no place in any of the things we talked about, but their place will be in the things we talked about over the last few weeks. The lake of fire. A place you didn't create for mankind, but you created for the devil and his angels. You don't desire that anyone would go there for you. Tell us you're not willing that any should perish all should come to repentance and therefore everlasting life. I pray right now you would reveal through the power of your Holy Spirit these truths in the hearts of those that doubt and show them the truth that they might give their hearts to you afresh and anew if necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.